So I'm meeting today with Kathy Gilbody. Um, she's currently the adjunct clinical associate professor um, at the graduate programs in physical therapy at MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. She also serves as the senior physical therapist at News Newton Wellesley Hospital in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, Kathy was one of the first neurologic clinical specialists and is a Katherine Worthingham Fellow. So tell me what your role was um, in the two-step and the three-step conferences. Okay. Um, in the two-step conference, I was a participant. So I went to that conference as a clinician, um, currently working at the time at um, MGH at the hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital. And I was on the rehab unit there working with all kinds of, all kinds of patients with all kinds of um, medical diagnoses. Um, in my role at the three-step conferences, I was one of the um, co-coordinators um, with Darcy Umford from the pediatric section. And so we oversaw the, you know, sort of the soup to nuts of, um, of three-step. So, there, you know, there's a large span of time between two-step and three-step. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, what was it like, what was, what was the state of PT practice at the time of two-step, and how was that affected by attending two-step for you? Well, um, yes, it was, <laughs> it was very different then. <laughs> So what I, from what, what I can remember, um, we were in an era, at least from my practice, so I was an early practitioner at that point in time, and um, you know, I had gone to school in Boston and stayed in Boston to work. And um, so my practice was heavily influenced by what I learned and what the people around me did. And I hadn't really seen much outside of Boston. Boston is heavily PNF, um, and so in terms of, you know, we were really thinking about what was the right therapeutic exercise for the patient. Right. And um, I know I had um, recently decided to, to get NDT certified, and so I had taken that step and I think done the first session, and we had to go back like three months later and do the second weekend. That's how it was structured at the time. So when I went to two-step, it, 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 my mind just kind of blew up. <laughs> because we, it was clear that um, the thinking was going, you know, much more towards sort of these initial frameworks of thinking about clinical decision making and practice, and um, um, you know, moving towards some um, standardized early measures um, of, of function. And, um, but we were heavily impairment-based still, I'd say, at that time. So th there was that sort of shift towards thinking about function. And I would say the other, the other big thing that I came back with was this big, you know, really beginning to think differently about um, patients with the same diagnosis in terms of how they presented differently and how right. they, they were people and uh, what some of the sort of personal factors were that might impact their response to therapy. And one of my most memorable um, things from, that I do remember from, from Two-Step was Patty Leahy's presentation 
oh, you weren't there. Patty presented this framework of a patient with TBI. It was like a case report. It was later published. And she just did a beautiful job um, exploring the questions that a therapist can ask herself or himself and the decision-making um, um, yeah. uh, for going through all the various elements of what we now refer to as the patient-client management model, but we didn't have a name for it then. Um, and, um, and then asking a bunch of questions about practice, um, introducing the concept that therapy is practice and therapists are coaches. And that really wasn't how we saw ourselves um, at that point in time, at least not in Boston. Um, so that was, you know, I, I came back and I really started thinking very differently about my patients and looking across my patients and started to think about patterns and started to think about not just doing things with my hands on the patient, but taking my hands off the patient right. and allowing them to make mistakes. And, and all that was sort of the beginning of, of those shifts in thinking. In three-step, um, you know, I had, I had a different perspective for three-step, partly because I was uh, lucky enough to be one of the organizers and therefore very involved in the programming planning. And we had some amazingly bright um, people who had a, connections that were in the research world and in the science world. Mm. Um, and they had started to bridge those gaps um, as physical therapists that we would that we needed to start to bridge and they were sort of at the forefront of that um, like Becky Craig like Carolee Winstein um, like Ann Van Sant um, and, 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 and then there were a number of, of, of beginning researchers like Diane Damiano and Eddie Philforte and Lara Boyd right. who had just um, started to enter this research world um, and they were starting to really make some links with practice. So, you know, when we were planning the agenda and the experience for Three Step, we ha I, I was just, I, you know, that's when my mind kind of started blowing up, you know, Again. even before the conference <laughs> because I was um, just so amazed to hear what was happening um, with Jeff Klein's work, with Randy Nudo's work, with all these people mm -hmm. um, that... Um, we're doing such relevant um, work with animals and then sometimes with people that was relevant to PT practice. And we were, I think, largely as a profession, at least in neuro-PT, unaware right. of that work. And so as we play in the programming committee, of the program as, as, as it evolved, um, you know, I was so excited by the time we got there to understand that we were going to really start to understand and learn more about, you know, plasticity, um, and different interventions that actually had now been started to be studied <laughs> for their efficacy. Um, and the shift um, towards, again, a more complete shift that had started at two-step, but towards you know, really thinking about things more on an enablement model, model with the patient um, as opposed to a disablement model, not what, what, what are the impairments, what's the patient's problem, but what are the resources, what's left, Right. And how can we use that? It's a um, big model shift. Huge, huge shift. Um, and and so, you know, we had very, um, we had very, I, I had so many aha moments at that meeting um, where I would, um, things would kind of just click in my brain and I'd say, oh, so that, that now makes sense and I can think about a couple of ideas or they were discussed or presented to try and 
do things a little differently, um, whether it was with practice or it was with strength training with patient groups that we thought really didn't need strength training, but mm, yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, you know, I felt like I was able to come home from three-step with some really, you know, um, different ideas and concepts that were emerging that I could use in practice. But my most, most memorable moment was I was sitting in one of the case discussions for three-step, and we had arranged those similar to how they're happening here at four-step, but a little differently. We had arranged them to be paired presentations between a clinician and a researcher, and we had invited people to submit cases um, that would meet with some of the themes for three-step um, that would basically demonstrate you know, application of this new information to something we'd probably today call translation, but we didn't have that word then. Um, and so I was sitting in one of the cases on spinal cord injury, which was not something that I really did then or do very much in my practice now. And we were hearing some of the early work about activity um, therapy and, and how plasticity seemed to be um, related after spinal cord injury, the behavioral experiences that patients had within, ther within therapy. Mm -hmm. So that whole concept of, of that. And there were people in, <clears throat> after, the, after the eloquent um, presentation that was, that was done by this pair, um, there was a small time to do questions and answered. And, one, one, and somebody got up to the, um, somebody had been sitting, a gentleman had been sitting two, two seats over from me, and he stood up and he walked to the mic with crutches, for, bilateral form crutches, and he asked a really relevant question um, about some elements of the, of the locomotor training program that was being discussed that was sort of this emerging therapy at the time. Um, and uh, he, he, so his question was answered, and then the, the discussant, were you here? You, you were there. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the presenter asked him back a question, and um, he went on then to excuse me, identify himself, and he was an orthopedic surgeon who had had a spinal injury, and he was not a physical therapist. So here he was at, at three-step, and he was a patient, effectively. He'd had a spinal injury four or five years ago, and he had... Um, had partial recovery. He had, I think he had an accident jumping on a trampoline, um, and uh, which is something he did as like this leisure sport with his buddies, and his, his wife had always been yelling at him for him, but he did it anyway. And so he had had an incomplete spinal cord, cervical spinal cord injury, and he had became, regained some ability to walk, but he was uh, had to stop his practice, and he was from the Utah area, and he had to, um, he, he walked minimally, and he had um, wanted to walk more. So he did a bunch of research on the internet, <clears throat> and he connected with, I believe it was Andrea Berman, it was one of our, our sort of people that had presented or was, was working in this area, his PT did, and it was a community-based you know, therapist in mm -hmm. a, a, mm -hmm. a could-be-anywhere type setting. Right. And, and they, she offered some advice, and they collaborated over the phone, and basically they... Um, the therapist and this patient and some family members went to, to Home Depot and they made him in his house um, on top of a treadmill a body weight support system with cables wow. that would help him stay up so that he could do and implement this intervention at home. And they worked over several months and he was able to achieve overground ambulation at first with um, 
a rolling walker outside in the community and then with bilateral canes. Wow. But his walking was very slow. And then he was, and he got very involved in the, in the spinal cord injury community and all of this. And he was then tapped. Um, he was invited like three or four months, no, six months before the Olympics to be the individual to um, deliver the torch and light it, the last part of the journey for the Olympic torch. And um, he had to be able to walk at a certain pace to do it. And he, he, his walking speed was too slow. So he went back on the treadmill and they um, did another couple they of months the program. Speed. They upped the speed, they increased the intensity and he was able to achieve his goal. And so that was such a chilling experience. And we ended wow. up, so there I was sitting in the room, one of the organizers of the meeting, and there's a patient in the room and like, there shouldn't be a patient in the room, right? Right. And then he tells a story. Wow. And there was no way that he was, you know, ever going to be invited to leave. Like everybody just <laughs> really, really appreciated his story. And he, um, he came to several other sessions he, and we identified and thanked him for his participation um, at the closing ceremonies when we were at the Olympic yeah, Stadium. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. I do that. remember that. And he later... But I didn't know the story. Yeah, of, the backstory. And later he shared his um, some slides and stuff with us so that... That's really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. In fact, um, yeah, you should, we should probably give you those slides. Yeah. Because I have a slide of him on his home apparatus and then I have it on my computer at home. And then I... Oh, I may have it here. And then I have a slide of him um, at the Olympics. Wow. That's... So... What an amazing example. Oh, yeah. That was unplanned. Totally unplanned. And like that, you know, and his contribution was gave us, gave, you know, the people in that conference in the room and then later in the entire conference because we just really wanted to share yeah. the story. Like such a, per, you know, a personal perspective right. on trying to reduce the barriers that exist when right. novel therapies evolve and they, they make sense and then there's some beginning science right. and then there's all these what, what, how and what ifs and how could we and it doesn't get reimbursed and and this therapist and this patient figured it out right and it, it was just such MacGyver. a great example <laughs> yeah um and she brought him to the meeting like yeah. <laughs> didn't ask anybody yeah. it was a great example of you just deciding not to ask permission but to perhaps apologize if right. it doesn't work out right and um you know she made a good call because he was um he really added value to that meeting, and we would never have no. thought to do that. Right. Yeah. That brings us to our next yeah. question, which is, you know, we all know that neurology section or academy members can be a little wild and crazy at times. <laughs> what, what sort of either behind the scenes or in front of the scenes, um, crazy things happened either at two-step or three-step that you remember? Excuse me. At two step, I, I you know this wasn't crazy or wild, but I think something we 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 had one afternoon off. It was so hot, we all went to the pool. And and what I remember is that I met some like famous people at the pool, <laughs> right. and um, that was really cool. And there they were in their bathing suits and and flap and Carol Giuliani, right, talking to her about spasticity in the pool while you're hanging out in the pool. Oh my God! And like she can have this conversation with me, and I'm just like. Right. You know, amazed, right. and um, so we had a lot, a lot of great conversations and and fun, and and we had a big party. I was off campus for that meeting. I don't get on campus housing. I don't know why. And uh, 
we had we had a, we had a party at our place and like you know all these famous people came and it was just it was great it was really great to just be people with people um, I also remember meeting meeting Ken, Kenda Fuller yeah. in the pool and she had just taken the NCS exam a year ahead of me and uh, I was I was decided I was going to do it and I'll never forget what she said. What she told me, what she shared with me, was that she had taken it the first time and not passed. Um, but she um, had decided. If, no, we took. Did we take it together? I don't know. Anyhow, um, I think I took it the third year. So she must have taken it the first and the second year. So she was going to take it again, and and that's because she came out of it and said um, that it, it, she could pass it. Like she just had to think about the questions, and you know, it was so you know. Yes. And. And so I thought, well, that's great. I'm going to definitely do it because so that was like a sort of a very influential kind of conversation because I thought, well, if this person who, who I, we had talked about balance and she was doing some of the same work in Colorado I was doing in Boston, she can do it, so that's great. And so that's, we started some, you started some really nice relationships at these meetings, people that right. you met and, and we've stayed in touch with. So, so Kendra went and she took it and she passed and then I went the following year and took it and I came, I came out of the meeting and I thought, out of the exam, I thought, I have no idea if I passed that exam. And I did, but by one point. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? Unbelievable. But that's all that matters, and right? And I tell everyone the story that's taking the exam because she influenced me. And like her, her resilience and her persistence and her like, ah, I can do this and I want to do it. Her motivation like really made me take the step. And then I want people to know that because, you know, it could have gone either way and I would have gone back. Right. Um, so I sort of remember you know, those kind of more personal moments. And then from three-step, honestly, it was a blur. Um, so Whitney you have to the talk bowl, about, you have to so talk Whitney about. on the bowl was just a nut. So, so what happened with the bowl? Well, honestly, I wasn't at that. We, were, we had a planning meeting that night, so I didn't get to go to the, to the event. So I only heard about it. But um, were you there? I actually I was there. Yeah. So so yeah. So I can't I can't tell the story, but what I can tell is that um, Sue decided. To, what I understand happens is that Sue decided to to um, instead of just riding the bull for fun, wager bets and generate revenue for the section. Right. So it ended up being on, a fundraiser. Exactly. How long she could stay on it, and don't you know that damn Sue Whitney stayed on that bull. <laughs> And since then, um, we, well, within days of the conference ending, that Sue Whitney on a Bull video and pictures right. <laughs> streamed across the country, and most of us still have those. Um, as and she carried that even to CSM the following yes. year. Yeah. So yeah, we had to get our the, I guess our energies out. The the things that people will do, the crazy things people will do to raise money for the exactly. section or academy. It was a great example. Yeah, yeah, I was sorry that I had missed that. Um, I also remember our yellow jackets. We all wore yellow jackets to be identified as three-step members. I'll just say this quickly. And so there's this whole series of pictures that people want to take to sort of, you know, have a historical record of, of these, these meetings and the people and all of that. And um, our, we took pictures one day, and um, it was a day like this morning here. It was a little rainy. And we took them at the front of the auditorium inside because it was so rainy. And the only thing that showed up in the picture were the jackets. You <laughs> <laughs> couldn't see the people at right. all. Right, no, just a bunch of neon chests. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so they made us come back the next day, and they turned the lights on, and we got the pictures then. Oh. So, um, so I have to tell you that I um, am an great admirer of yours, um, and for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons that um, I admire you and the work that you've done in your career is that you have um, been able to and, and have intentionally bridged that clinician-researcher gap and also been an amazing teaching resource. Um, and, and I think that that's something that's difficult for many people to do. And so I wondered if you had any advice on how, how you go about doing that and how did you do it? I mean, because it's a, it's a, that's a big task. Yeah, yeah. So I have just been so blessed to be in, in, a, in an environment professionally where all those opportunities were available to me. So, you know, I got out of um, PT school and I went to work at the MGH where I had done a clinical affiliation. And so that's just a very vibrant, you know, high cognitive load type of practice and across professions, you know, it's, it's fast paced. And so that, you know, that's an environment that's very stimulating and there are people around you that are always learning. And, and um, so I was stimulated to, to continue to learn. And, and um, so, you know, five years after I graduated, the MGH opened the post-professional program for physical therapists at the MGH Institute, which had previously just been a nursing program. And so that, that was an um, advanced master's degree back in the time when we were still baccalaureate trained. So I had the opportunity to do some advanced clinical training, and in a, in a, in the, in the educational model was one that was clinically focused, that involved an advanced clinical preceptorship component as well as a research component. So I was able to go out to Rancho Los Amigos and work there for a couple of, year, a couple of months, as well as I had to do um, a thesis, and that required pretty much a rigorous um, research proposal and actually doing data collection the whole nine yards. The expectations were really crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but I did it part-time, and so by the time I finished that program, I felt like I had um, a really good ex you know, experience in clinical research. And then there were people attracted to the faculty at the MGH Institute that were interested in doing clinical research, and so I was able to get involved in opportunities to do that, and I took those opportunities. And so I feel like I've... Um, and then later in my career, I decided I wanted to um, do some teaching. And Margaret Schenkman, who was on the faculty at the IHP then, said, I need a clinical person to teach this course with me. And that, again, that was the model. Um, it's still the model at the IHP today. And, and so I was inv you know, able to get involved in teaching. And so I did these various things and basically was able to collaborate with people in that setting in Boston. Um, and, and, you know, at one point in time, I, I did um, less clinical work, and I, and I worked on some grant writing with Dave Krebs, and we got funded to do some mm -hmm. trials. Um, and then my time would be maybe four days on the study and one day in the, in the clinic. And so I was just had lots of opportunities to be flexible and to shift around. So I, I, I never had to do what people have to, to do often, which is to try to do scholarship teaching and practice at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, and then later I decided I wanted to step back and have more time at home for my family. And 
I was, in, I was in my best job ever at that point. I was on the faculty full-time at the Institute, but I had a day a week in the clinic, and I had some relief time from the Institute to coordinate the studies that other therapists were then doing back in the, the PT department at MGH. But it didn't work. The balance didn't work at home. Because prior, prior to that, I was able to, I always felt like my, my kids and my job, which I loved, were number one and equal. And, and on every day, I might not get to everything on each side of the, of the you know, bucket, but, right. but in general, I did. And I felt like I, you know, things went, you know, not always smoothly, but they were good. And, and they were equally important in the same priority. And what I found is the kids got older, and, and my kids are great, but, but as a parent, that my husband and I both being on the fast track, there was no room for error. Right. And so I had to re reorganize, and we, I, I tried a bunch of things for over like a couple of years to try to change how much time I spent at, at work or to um, drop this responsibility and go a little bit less time, and, and, it, and it didn't work. So after two years, I made the really hard decision to leave my job at the Institute and to take no job. And I did that um, for five years but, so that I could be at home. Because the kids were just growing up, and, and you know, we make the joke that most people don't, if they have children, they don't go back to work when they're infants. But that was really, to me, the very predictable time where it was easy to work and balance everything. And it was when they got to be in school in I second agree. and third grade that they started changing so much. And their, as their world opened up, then the issues and the predictability and helping them and, and being parenting them was not something that it was easy or comfortable to delegate to a nanny. Correct. It just didn't work. Yeah. So then I had this time where I took all my courses that I was teaching in the, in the programs, and the MGH Institute had, by that point, added an entry-level program. So I was teaching in two programs. Um, and I, took the, I went back to the advanced program, which we still had at that time, and I transitioned my courses to online. And so I was able to do online teaching for a while from home and then just get involved more in APTA and sections things um, and community things. Um, which was what I wanted to do, and um, so I feel like, um, and then, and then more recently, I felt like I needed to get back to the patient. I miss being with patients. Um, I felt like I was able to maintain contacts with colleagues. I can right. I'm on a couple of editorial boards, so I feel like I'm well able to connect with research, with research things, and um, am involved in some things in the section that keep me involved professionally on different right. levels. But I miss patients, so that's when I went back about eight years ago to treating patients. And so that's been great. It's a very flexible mm -hmm. place, and I've done a couple of studies there because that's what they're interested in. And um, and I still and I actually have gone back um, to teaching at one day a week in the course that I developed. And now I'm I'm a, I'm a TA in that class, <laughs> which is great because I get to see what's happened with this course. These courses I developed ten years ago. Right. What's changed? What's you know what's been updated? Um, so I think the advice would be to really look around and take advantages of opportunities that are in people's settings and look for mentors. I mean, I've had a tremendous number of mentors. Um, now I feel like I have a tremendous number of people that, that follow me, you know, that yes. I mentor. And that's great, too, because I, you still learn from, from them. Um, so I, don't, I guess I don't have any specific information except to, be, to look for opportunities to get involved because they... Those opportunities have that has been they've led to other opportunities and right. new experiences and um, so it's been fun. What's been the most rewarding thing that you've done so far? 
As a PT? As a PT. Well, yeah. So Kimple the parent thing. <laughs> um, the most rewarding thing? Probably teach. If I had to really... I don't know, though. Because I've loved the research I've done. I, I'm really... That, that's a really hard question for me because I'm a Gemini. And so I see <laughs> things from more than one perspective. Do you know what I mean? Right, right, right. So, like, and I'm like that. I guess the best way for me to answer it is I don't think there's one. I think that at different stages in my life, I have had different favorites. Yeah. So, for example, when I was at the IHP teaching, I absolutely loved um, that was ideal for me. Mm -hmm. I worked with a group, you know, that was ideal. Um, when I did, had the opportunity to do this, this beginning clinical research with Dave Krebs and others on, in the vestibular system, it was an amazing experience. I loved it. I would have done it for years and full time, you know, if things had worked out differently. Right. Right, right now, I love my patients. Right now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wa want to work less with patients. Yeah. I just absolutely love being having come full circle. And, and then being able to mentor and sort of teach in the clinical mm -hmm. thing and, and do these smaller research studies in the clinical setting. So I'm kind of still doing a variety of things, you know. Right, right. And I wouldn't change where I am now for anything. And it's probably because I get to do a couple of different things. Right. Um, but there are times when I wouldn't have wanted to do this. I would, you would have wanted to do what you were doing then. Exactly. So right. I think I've just had different changes. I can't, I can't identify one. That's a sign of a really amazing career, right? When you... Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So tell me what you do for fun. Visit my kids who are both away at school now. You know we're an empty nester. Yes. Yeah. Um, I travel. My husband and I love to travel. Where do you like to travel to? Oh, Europe, Italy. He's a New Zealander. We've been back there a bunch of times. Um, we're going to Belgium in a couple of months, so lots Anywhere, of places. everywhere. Lots of places, yeah. Um, and then around home, I, I love to read. I belong to a couple of book clubs, um, and I work out a lot. <laughs> so you're walking the, you're walking the talk. I as we As we yeah. were talking about in the yeah. course of this week. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>